Today's show is sponsored by Sublono. I am introducing Sublono Track Free, a real-time tracker that's connected directly to your construction site. And guess what? It's completely free. You will save time by reporting on site from your phone. Simply record updates once from the Sublono app and watch your desktop tracker automatically sync. Replace disjointed spreadsheets with a single tracker that connects all the moving parts of your project in real time. Track Free helps you understand progress data in moments from a bird's eye project overview to all the granular details. You can even filter your view by deliverable and add supporting documents, photos and notes. And if you're tired of chasing for updates, invite your team to 2x your productivity, collaborate with your subbies and project partners seamlessly from a single source of truth. Want to try it out for free? Go to today's show notes and get started. You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 147 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. As we near episode 150, I just wanted to thank everyone for listening to the show. It's so cool doing the show, honestly, even for a sad person like me to admit it. Um, We're in the top 2% of podcasts in the world. We're often in Apple's top 20 in the UK. And to think we're almost always talking about construction law, procurement and commercial tactics. Who would have thought it would be so popular? But we're doing that all because you guys are listening and I get great joy uh, whenever you guys reach out to me to say that you enjoy what we're doing. Today, I am again sharing a link to the QS KPIs ebook, which we chatted about last week with Chris. We got great feedback from that show. And if you want to think about how to get better value from your commercial team, you should definitely check it out. It's in the show notes. On to today's show. And in the studio today, we are joined by John Watts, who is the Procurement and Supply Chain Director at Hayfield Homes. John is passionate about procurement. And as all of you listeners know, I might be a touch obsessed with it as well. John, welcome to the show. How's it going? Yeah, very good, mate. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. I mean, I'm I'm conflicted here because as everybody knows, well, not everybody, but as some of the listeners will remember, I am sad enough to support a terrible football club named Birmingham City. And I'm even uh, sadder to have invited an Aston Villa fan onto the show to have a conversation with me. So conflicted is an understatement. <laughs> We're we going straight there, are we? We are. Do, we've got to, <laughs> got to get it out there early, haven't we? I don't think there's a lot to say, though, is there? <laughs> no, to be honest with you, I should really keep my mouth shut. And Chris, Chris, my business partner, who was on the show last week, sadly is a Villa fan as well, although he keeps it to himself. So that's two in two, uh, which is um, provocative, to say the least. But anyway, we won't talk football, which is probably a good thing for me. We'll talk construction and procurement, mate. Just... I've given a bit of an introduction, obviously, Procurement and Supply Chain Director at Hayfield Homes. I know that your background is that you're XRAF, but just talk about your journey to where you are today in construction and your role today. I say background is RAF. Um, I I left the RAF and wasn't sure what to do, where to go, um, how to earn money, kind of bobbed around a little bit, 
My dad uh, was uh, well worked for George Wimpy back in the day when it was George Wimpy. He he would he'd worked for George Wimpy for about thirty years, thirty odd years, and he randomly happened to mention that they were searching for a trainee trainee buyer. And at the time, I, one of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> at the time, I, I I thought, what what's a trainee buyer? Um, what, what do they buy? Obviously, I'm good at buying stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm good at spending money. I don't know. All that. Um, <laughs> obviously, I'd kind of you know heard around what like a quantity surveyor does, a QS, you know, but I'd never heard of a buyer. But uh, I needed a job, <laughs> so I went along to the interview. Was pretty much offered the job there and then, and started life as a trainee buyer for George Wimpy back in. 2007 I want to say that's a lot it's a while ago and then my life my career has been procurement I've rose the ranks from like uh, assistant from buyer to uh, from training buyer to assistant buyer to buyer and eventually into roles such as head of procurement head of supply chain for SMEs PLCs um, from contracting to partnership housing to private house building to PRS to high-rise You've done you know, it all. So there's a wealth of experience there. Yeah, well, I've done it all, but probably not very long in each. Uh, <laughs> but it's a varied experience. But yeah, definitely, um, definitely worthwhile. You know, I've took parts from each um, and, and and have been able to apply those to to where I am really and, and what I do. Amazing. And there's a couple of things that stick out from that story. But I think the the the, the first bit echoes with my own experience in that you came into the industry in 2007 that's exactly the same time when i came into the industry great and time yeah oh <laughs> fantastic financial crisis kind of time wasn't it yeah but, yeah, yeah. Um, i have to say that you know my reflection uh, on coming into the industry as a trainee qs you're a trainee buyer at that time was that it really gave focus and clarity to to me, uh, I felt like the I was very fortunate with the managers that I had at the time and, and throughout, to be honest with you, but in giving me absolute clarity. And they were uber-focused on getting everything spot on in that moment in time because it was such a sensitive period in the economy and the wider industry, et cetera, et cetera. What are your reflections on joining the industry at that time? I joined, so I joined in January 2007. So I had probably 12 months to 18 months experience before i was october so i was right in uh, the thick of it yeah so there you go so i had about like say 12 months 18 months of experience before really the you know the 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 jungle drums started beating and um you know people started panicking but like you i had a really good mentor at the time he, he was a, a very experienced uh, and a very uh, sarcastic irishman and uh, he he took me under his wing. Uh, he my bot. He was a senior buyer, I think, at the time. But got on really well with him. I think under under the trainee program, trainees were safe from redundancy. So the you know the immediate risk you know wasn't there, and, and I knew it wasn't there. But at the same time, you know the team around me was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But like you said, it, it, it I think it doubled down on on my focus. Um, get my head down, work hard, learn, contribute. Um, what can I do? There's less people doing the jobs, so therefore I need to step up anyway. I was going to say, did that give you more exposure then, as the team yeah, narrowed? It, it, it meant that it does. Your, by your default, work it broadened. does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. By default, it does. Um, 
So, you know, I did 18, 18 months at George Wimpy. Um, I saw the merge, <laughs> unfortunately, the merge obviously with Taylor Woodrow at the time was just before the recession happened. So I, I was there through the merger and I remember then being approached for an assistant buyer's role. What what led to me wanting to look elsewhere was I was actually offered I was actually offered promotion within George Wimpy or Taylor Taylor Wimpy, which you want to call it, which they then revoked because of the recession and the fact that trainees were safe for redundancy, they kept me as a trainee. So it was a backhanded compliment. <laughs> <laughs> but but I wanted the extra money and I wanted the company car that came with assistant buyer. So um I, you know, quietly was starting to look elsewhere uh, and that's when I, you know, moved, eventually moved to a small contracting firm that was my first probably taste of construction uh, and probably, you know, what I would call, what I would call proper buying. And so, and so just, just touching on that point, it's really interesting. So for you, there is a distinction between house building and construction. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, there is. I think, you know, your house building buyer or anybody that's involved in house building if, if they are if their whole career is house building then that's all they know they know how to build a house they know the trades that it takes i think it takes a different level or not necessarily a different level but a different approach to being in construction whereby you have to be more adaptable you could be building something uh, today and something completely different tomorrow the different types of material different types of building methods dealing with external architects, dealing with details that aren't yours, having to adhere to a very strict budget, looking at VE. You know, I think those types of um, activities are much more common in construction. And I think you need to be able to adapt, but you need to probably have much more of a wider knowledge in construction than you do in house building. Don't get me wrong, there's different skills you need in house building than construction, but... I would probably say, and it's probably controversial, but I would probably say that you could probably always do house building buying if you've been in construction. I think you'd struggle to do construction buying if you've always been in house building. Yeah, that, that, it's, it's, it's a wider brief is what you're saying effectively. In, yeah. In construction. I mean, my, my background is always construction by your uh, definition. And we have clients in house building. And I was, I know it's kind of standard practice now, but I was initially quite surprised that some of our clients would have, they would be doing subcontract procurement, supply and install, but they would be insisting on the purchase of materials via a pre-prescribed supplier at a pre-prescribed price, which the the house builder themselves has effectively procured and agreed and negotiated those prices to to obviously get the economies of scale. Because to me, that was as a QS at least, it made the ability to procure in a different way or in a unique way, package by package, more difficult because you've already got pre-prescribed rates and material prices, if that makes sense. So I was surprised by that. So it's definitely nuanced, isn't it? Just So Hayfield Homes, and I'm going to sound ignorant here, but is that are you considering yourselves construction or house building? I'd say we're house building. There's probably different categories of house builder out there, but yeah, it, ultimately the product that we deliver is is a house, albeit at the at the top end, it's a it's a premium house, which has different challenges to uh, a house builder that's delivering partnership housing or volume uh, private housing. But ultimately, yes, we're a house builder, and yeah, it's it is what it is. And do you feel that the your experience in in inverted commas construction really helps you to? 
deliver procurement where you are now in a in a better way yeah i think what you've got to look at is yes we're a house builder but we're an sme and i think that's where the two worlds do collide in in a positive way you know my experience in contracting and that that world definitely supports and and aids my ability to add value to an sme house builder i think if you were to look at a procurement role in a in a large volume house builder it'd probably be slightly different but yeah, for me specifically, what I like about contracting or co- construction, I can apply a lot easier and a, more, a lot more naturally in, in an SME house builder. We are, yes, we're a house builder, but we're very much con- probably contracted, contracting led house builder. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And it's a lot less prescriptive with those kind of deals in place with some of the larger suppliers, I guess, as I was kind of referring to before. Interesting, interesting. And we're going to get into the detail a lot now, John, but... The spark for today's conversation was a conversation that you and I had, and that was focused on like the difference in mentality almost. You're smiling and smirking at me. Uh, the difference in mentality between how a quantity surveyor perceives procurement and how a buyer perceives procurement, and almost that collaboration or sometimes lack of collaboration between the two departments who should be so intrinsically linked, but maybe in some cases I've worked at companies where not necessarily felt like uh, partners in the, in the truest sense. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. And I guess just to kickstart that conversation, when we first spoke, you said procurement and quantity saying are similar, but totally different. Just describe what you mean by that. Um, look, you know, they're, they're both commercial functions, Ultimately, one just happens to operate predominantly in a subcontract arena and one operates in a material, well, if you want to add it in material and plant arena, you know, your surveyor technically is responsible for 80% of a project cost and the buyer is responsible for 20% of a project cost of superstructure build cost. So, you know, they are very similar. They both operate in the commercial field. Um, they both contribute to the same outcome. They are both reporting in the same way, just on slightly different things. They have common goals, but just probably different approaches, you know, ultimately. That, that's probably the simplest simplest way to explain it. I came up through the ranks really very much thinking that buying was a poor relation to surveying, you know. A uh, surveyor is effectively a budget owner. They control the cost. They report on the cost. They sit in the monthly cost meetings, whereas the buyer very rarely does that, especially, at, you know, junior buyer, junior level. They report, effectively report into the surveyor and the surveyor then um, owns the general, you know, owns the budget for a project. And whilst I understand that, I think what that has instilled in me is is effectively an underdog mentality. I have always tried to champion the, the the role of a buyer or a procurement professional, the value that we can bring or add to the to to the team, and to really try and and promote what we can do that surveyors potentially probably aren't prioritising or aren't focused on. You know, there's buyers by nature are very detailed people. You know, we have to be. We have to examine the specifications. We have to ex- examine whether something will work, whether it's compliant with another element. Surveyors generally rely on trades or subcontractors probably to do that for them. It's different, and therefore, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Therefore, surveyors are very much cost-led. You send out to tender, they, they do the comparison, they look at the bottom line, they negotiate, and they place an order. 
buyers do a lot of that, but they also interrogate specification, they interrogate detail, they VE, and they they have to do that on their own accord um, rather than relying on a trade that is technically an expert in their field. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think that's I think that's really fair actually. To be honest, with you. I mean, I think there'll be a few there'll be a few Birmingham City fans listening thinking. Aston Villa fan with an underdog mentality, you winding me up. And there'll be a few there'll be a few quantity surveyors listening thinking, you know, we're very detailed in terms of how we go through the specification, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But I do see what you're saying there about a slight difference in our mentality, because often we are trying to best uh, attribute risk to appropriate parties, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, where you get perhaps less into the detail of the specification on certain packages than than perhaps a buyer would. In terms of the core differences, you know, the way I kind of see it with my QS glasses on is that a QS, as you said, is driven typically by a project budget and a project outcome where a buyer is not so driven or measured on a project outcome. And I always thought that the primary difference between the two departments was that we couldn't ever really zoom out, but you could zoom out and say, you know, right, we're speaking to this supplier on 10 different projects, but I only really care about one. So how how do you actually see the difference and how do you see the two working together? Because I often felt like, not that I didn't care, but I, it wasn't my job to zoom out and try and work out what the other eight QSs were busy doing. Yeah. So what, what's your view on that? It's, it's a weird one. You know, I've worked in places where surveyors were responsible for both subcontractor material procurement you know they didn't have a buying team as such you know i was in a supply chain role effectively then rather than a procurement role and you know even then though it's evident that there's no real appetite to really understand material cost it basically is a case of race to the bottom line with with material it's get get, get a number of quotes in place you order the cheapest worry about it later Whereas actually that company now have actually flipped that and they've, they've actually introduced a buying team and they are now doing material procurement through a buying team. And, and Why have they done that? Because they've recognized that actually there's value to be had by people that specialize in material procurement. You know, so much so that, that it supports an overhead to do that. You know, so if you look at that and you think, right, an overhead of a team of two to three is circa 100 to 150K, you know, I've got to cover that overhead before actually we start adding value. And that company have done that knowing that and they are now adding value. Because there is a specific difference in the skill set for material procurement. I, yeah, I think it just comes down to, like I say, I think it comes down to how we approach uh, negotiation and how we approach detail. Look, I'm not I'm not saying that all surveyors are the same. They're not, you know, there are clearly surveyors out there that are detailed and and go into the nth degree and, and examine a scope of works. But in, in in large, I think, especially probably in the in the younger in the junior ranks, if you like, the surveyors typically are they send out an inquiry, they they get a number of quotes in, they do a quick checklist comparison and it's place the order. They rely on a set of preambles and a, and a scope of works that are predetermined, pre-agreed, predefined. The specification that goes into subcontract packages is already pre-agreed anyway from someone in procurement. Or by the client, the architect has said, this is the yeah. spec and you can't change it. Exactly. Whereas I think a buyer 
in theory, you know, there are less suppliers out there than there are subcontractors, you know, so I can move from company to company to company, no matter where I am geographically, and probably use the same supplier base, whereas, you know, subcontract is very much regionalized. And that's obviously because of the labor. So a surveyor could move from one region to another and have to establish relationships with a completely different supply chain. Whereas I can move from company to company, two different ends of the country, and probably... Yeah, that goes to that take a step back have a bit more strategic long-term view of almost like the market that you're operating in right as a buyer which you know whether it's because it's regionalized and you might bounce to different areas or if it's just it's also projects as well right you're on one for two years and then so you don't have that longer term view so i think that makes sense of the difference i think like like i say surveyors generally are project based you know a surveyor would probably have one to two projects to manage a buyer probably has four or five pro- projects to manage, but they're not as involved in that project, you know, so hence why they can obviously accommodate more. And like you say, you know, buyers probably have to, by default, have to take a slightly bigger picture view on can we leverage greater commercial opportunity by negotiating multiple projects at once? Whereas if you're a project surveyor, you're probably, like I say, you are very much probably tunnel vision. It's narrow-minded. You are thinking about your project and your project alone. But as you obviously raise, you know, rise through the ranks and your commercial managers or commercial directors, they're thinking bigger picture, you know, so they're saying, oh, actually, you've got a project over there, you've got a project over there, let's see if we can get some commercial leverage. But your surveyor who's on that site isn't thinking that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very different, isn't it? And you're absolutely right about as you go through the ranks. And there's so many questions that kind of spring to mind off the back of what we've just discussed as like a foundation. And I want to talk to you about how SMEs can use buyers alongside QSs, how you collaborate with the commercial department to make sure you get those economies of scale. But we will do that right after this break. In construction today, a severe shortage of trades has become the norm. We talk about it a lot on the show, but for a main contracting business to thrive, you must create an environment that attracts subcontractors. At C-Link, we've worn the hats of subbies, main contractors, and we genuinely know what both sides needs. For main contractors, effective prequal is the linchpin of your success on any project. If you had real-time data on your supply chain's insurance, accreditations and financials, and even a wider pool of subcontractors to speak to, that would empower decision-making. For subcontractors, they want to receive comprehensive tenders with everything that they need to give you a good price. If you do that, you will massively increase your tender return rates. So, if you're a main contractor and you want to learn how to access real-time prequel data, grow your supply chain and deliver world-class tenders, you need to see C-Link. To find out more, you will be able to click a video in the show notes right now and also book a demo to speak to one of our team. We look forward to speaking to you soon. Oh, blooming hell. Maybe Villa fans aren't all bad. You've got my attention here, John. I'm interested. I'm interested. So I think the thing that I want to just go back to that you said in the first half. So there'll be lots of SMEs listening to this, whether they're developers, house builders, main contractors. They'll be listening to this and think, okay, one point was quite interesting to me specifically that you said about, I forget the name of the company or the company that you were exemplifying where they said, they said, we didn't have a buying department. Now we have a buying department, 100, 120K on the overheads added each year. 
but we've done it because there is absolute clear and obvious value to be extracted from that and i think certainly some of the smes that i have spoken to in the past might not feel they have the scale to command like great savings through economies of scale or even the you know like that strategic look ahead of okay i'm delivering 35 units this year we deliver 45 i've got this in my pipeline next year because of that sporadic nature or you know planning things take a long time perhaps not being as strategic as they could be with the buying department what do you guys do to really add that value well firstly there's different ways to attribute value you know if you look at pounds on the bottom line savings if you like that's a no-brainer ultimately you know a buyer's natural uh, remit is to save money, is is to contribute cost savings. So that's to negotiate most favourable terms with suppliers for a project or multiple projects. That will generate savings. That will generate generate value. That should cover your buyer's salary. The added value elements really come with relationships that they have with supply chain, um, with suppliers, with the manufacturers. And the relationships that they gain with your wider team, you know, your site management, your um, your commercial team, your finance team, your sales team. You know, in my experience, buying reaches all sorts of different things because we're involved in a lot of different things. But in terms of adding value, you know, my relationship with supplier means that I can get a delivery tomorrow rather than next week. My relationship with supplier means that, you know, I will take precedence over a different company. My relationship with the supplier means that um, if I really need a favour on a, on a price, they'll give me an, an extra discount. And then when you start to factor in those little things that all add up, you know, program delivery, LADs, delay to CML, those all incur costs. And if, if we can mitigate that by ensuring that we can guarantee delivery, we can control supply that we can control the cost of that supply and on top of that we can deliver the savings that just come with pure material negotiation and by default then if you achieve a saving on one site you can retrospectively go and request that saving on previous sites or sites that are already live orders that are already placed because i'm not tied into a fixed term contract you know it's it's a fluid arrangement and then you start to look forward and you think actually what do we need to do then to secure pricing certainty and that's then around uh, forward-looking future pipeline visibility talking to the supply chain giving people opportunities of preferred status you know it's a really woolly term but ultimately offering someone ability to be number one or number two on your supply chain you know making sure that they get um, 50% of our work, upcoming work, means that they can then forecast that their cash flow and their their obviously cash projection. So interesting. Honestly, John, the reason you have hit the nail on the absolute head here, I mentioned it at the top of the show, episode 146 last week, the episode was titled Why QS Needs More Than Margin as their KPI. And we talked about it extensively. I've written an ebook which is in the show notes, right? And the de facto KPI for a QS is what's the margin? You, you said at the top of the show, like, you, what's the budget on your project? Have you hit it? Have you betted it? Is it making money? That That's it. But what you've just talked about there is a whole range of alternative, different, like, measurables where you can see what a buyer is bringing to you. And it should almost be, a, a QS can't touch all of them there. I mean, you talked about 
you know, favourable terms for suppliers, relationship, delivery times. You talked about preferred status uh, in terms of building that longer term relationship. You talked about pipeline and visibility. That is something which so many uh, main contractors are not doing for their subcontractors, which they really should be doing. And we've seen more and more main contractors starting to do that, give uh, visibility, give preferred status, like bringing them almost into the supply chain. And in so doing, getting all those other benefits that you you get with, you know, favorable terms, price, delivery, et cetera, et cetera. And it's so interesting that you're saying that. And we've sat down here on the premise of what's the difference between a QS and a buyer. And last week talked about why QS is... Uh, need to be measured on a wider basis and what you're saying is that effectively you and your team as a procurement team you have like a a wider view of KPIs and what success is yeah I mean that you don't get me wrong you know that is driven by me and you know I I'm not saying that all buying teams do that I'm not saying all buyers are the same you know just like I'm saying that not all surveyors are the same you know there are good there are good surveyors there are bad surveyors there's good buyers there's bad buyers it's just the nature of the course um you know a good balanced team is made up of a, of a balanced team it's exactly that you know people that are driven that want to do more that want to progress that want to have further exposure people that are just content in their role and they and they they just want to do a good job and go home at the end of the day and people that are probably up and coming you know so it you need a balanced team and you need different types of approaches within that team but ultimately, you know, a buying team is is managed by a line manager, effectively me. I'm driving that strategy. I'm pushing the team to do better. I'm pushing the team to think outside the box and to consider different factors and to work more closely with your surveyors and your commercial team, work more closely with your site teams. You know, how can we add value? You know, What does that look like? What does it look? You say work more closely with you say with your surveying your commercial team, the site team, operational team. How do you integrate the two so that it's working fantastically well? You know, I'm lucky really that at Hayfield we early on we split the commercial and procurement department. You know, and I was brought in effectively reporting into a commercial director. And then literally probably within... You said, I'm not having any of this. This is is nonsense. This is not happening. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But quite quickly, they recognised that there's value to be had in someone effectively uh, driving procurement independently. And that's what we did. We split the departments. And, you know, it's been a massive success. You know, we're not... I'm not confined by commercial strategy or what their long-term strategy is what's the difference though like what was what was it that changed like what was it that freed you up to make better decisions for the company it's just different priorities you know a a commercial director's same as you know a qs to a buyer commercial director's priorities are different to a procurement director's priorities we both like say have the same goal we just approach it in a slightly different way and we have different elements different priorities within that and we support the business in different ways you know, we absolutely, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say their names because it'll blow smoke up their ass. But um, <laughs> we've got such a really, we've got such a close team at commercial level that you know, me and the commercial um, commercial director, and we've also got um, a precon director who's commercially focused, and we operate almost like a three-headed dragon. You know, it, okay. we are, we 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 overlap. Scary. Yeah, well. <laughs> 
you know, we overlap, we we intertwine, we challenge each other, but ultimately, beneath it all, we we we're supporting each other to achieve the same goal. You know, we may not come across that way sometimes to our to our teams because we challenge them in different ways, but ultimately, at our level, we absolutely are driving in the same direction. And I think that's key: is we have to be, we have to have the same ultimate goal. You can have people that don't, and then that's when it just doesn't work. And what um, is what is your ultimate like strategic goal right now that you all three of you are looking at and facing? Like, how do you know it's that you're aligned on it? I don't think there's a fixed goal. It's ultimately to be successful and to drive the, the performance of the business, to to drive improvement, to drive efficiency, to improve our cash cash position, to improve our P and L position, to support the business be the best that it can be. You know, and we are fortunate enough in, in an SME that we have we directly contribute towards that. And I think that is one of the big benefits of an SME is that we can, we, we feel we directly contribute and we can feel what that contribution does. And it's real time, you know, it's not 12 months down the line, it's now. And I think that only works though, when you've got a cohesive and collaborative team and we, 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 we've done a lot of work, you know, there's been a lot of pain. We've, we've challenged each other, but, but all for the common goal. And that is set by our boss, you know, our, our line manager, our CEO, our MD, whichever, whichever way you want to call it, they set the goal of the business. They set the culture of the business and we have to adapt and, and maneuver within that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, it makes perfect sense. And I'm going to ask you a question here, which I think I probably shouldn't because I know the answer. Going back to almost, it is for SMEs absolutely abundantly clear to have a commercial department. It's a, it's a no it's a known thing. You talked about that example earlier of a company where it was all done and all procurement was done under the commercial department. They split, added X hundred K or whatever to their overhead, but did it for the right decision. For the greater good, I should say. What is your advice to people listening to this show who m- would not have that separation between procurement and commercial as you have like should it be something they should be focused on and why that's a difficult one you know every business is different yeah of course and they approach things in different ways uh, i honestly think it probably does depend on the size of the business to whether they can accommodate the overhead to begin with i think that's key because that's a commitment that the business needs to make before they start to see the benefit ultimately you know there are benefits it's proven you know that's why you know most construction businesses or house building businesses have a survey have a surveying team and a buying team you know it's also workload driven you know we have different skills different attributes but like i said we we all have the same common goal and that's project delivery you know whether that's at site level whether that's at business plan level whether that's at wherever else you know it's it's the same common goal and that's to deliver so do smes need to separate no they don't it's down to the individual sme or the individual business to understand what value separating can offer i'm not going to sit here and you know try and change their mind you know people are sitting in the ways what I would say is people probably don't understand what a well-run procurement team can offer. And because for so long, procurement comes under the commercial banner. And that's, I think that's as black and white as I can be. Yeah, and I, th- I, I, I think you're absolutely right there. And th- this, this show, you know, we're recording it. It's Q4 2023. Can you 
take me inside kind of like the thinking and the conversations that you will be having now you talked about with your material suppliers with all of your suppliers with your supply chain generally you're talking in the long term john like you're you're giving them that forecast that pipeline and you're talking to them about what 2024 means for them what 2025 2026 means for them in a relationship with you how do you cultivate that long-term relationship so that when the s hits the fan you can uh, pick up the phone and say come on help me out on this one like what are you doing because not everyone is doing it and it's a really it's a skill that can be learned i think time um you know relationships aren't formed overnight someone once asked me in an interview years ago you know what's the what's the most important thing in your role and and you know without hesitation my my answer is relationship that above all else is why I can command the position that I can command. It's why that I add the value that I add is that, you know, over time I've cultivated relationships, I've nurtured relationships to the point where I can pick up the phone to someone that I haven't spoke to in a year and they will support me in whatever I need to do. Why? Is it trust? What What have you done it's, to get it's, there? It's trust. It's um, do what you say you're going to do. It's support. It's a mutual understanding, you know, we need the supply chain as much as they need us, you know, and I think that's important. I, I don't sit on this side of the fence and, and, and think, you know, it, I don't demand, I don't, de- you know, it's it's very much a collaborative approach. It has to be. Ultimately, we all want to get paid and we all want to go home and we all want to spend money and, We're and do what we want to do. Profit, right? um, yeah, exactly. And if, and if, you know, we, we need every part of the supply chain to do that. You know, don't get me wrong, I, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that I've cultivated relationships with every single supplier out there because I haven't, you know, and that's just not how it works. You you generate um, a supply chain based on shared experience and good experiences, bad experiences, challenging experiences, you know, so those that you have a good experience with, you generally will take with you and you'll think, actually, that supplier was great for me on that last site. That supplier gave me a great price, price and a great service. I'm going to take them to my next site. And then as you move through the ranks, it's, Actually, should we think about using that supply across all our sites? What benefit will that give me? Oh, actually, yes, that will give me that a bit of a saving, but it will also give us this and it'll give them a bit more, it'll give them, you know, more revenue and it'll give them more visibility of pipeline and they can commit more um, deliveries to us or more stock to us. And we can, we can harness that relationship to then, you know, when, if we are in a tight situation, we can pull on that relationship and, and, and we can almost use the relationship to demand preferential treatment shall i say because um, you've earned it because we've earned it yeah and it, and it, go, but it goes both ways you know it, it's we have good markets we have bad markets you know we have markets where through covid where supply went through the window lead times went out the window we were very much in the hands of the supplier you know they basically could almost charge us anything they wanted and tell us when they would deliver it it was almost took out of our hands so it's only the relationship that we have with certain suppliers that enables us to have some cost control and some visibility and some some and some commitment to supply same with subcontractors you know it's giving them visibility in pipeline and therefore they're able to obviously plan their overhead their labor their commitment to cash do you do that in a different way because i think that's sometimes where it's quite difficult for or sometimes we've been parroting on on this show specifically about the word relationship and like the simplicity of building a relationship with your subcontractors. But I do think there's a nuance between building a relationship with a supplier and building a relationship with a subcontractor personally. How do you, do you think there is? Yeah, I mean, from my side, I approach it a little bit differently. You know, 
I touched on earlier around the 80-20 rule, you know, 80% of spend is in a subcontract package, 20% is direct material purchase. But if you examine that 80%, probably 40% of that spend is controlled by product or price or service, which I manage, you know, so indirectly, I manage 60% of our spend, you know, so my relationship actually indirectly, uh, you know, has to be with subcontractors. You know, they know because we've tried to implement the relationship is that they know if they've got an issue with a manufacturer or a supplier or a product or a spec, they come to me, I support them. Absolutely, absolutely 100% support them. If they need help, I'm there. If they can't get hold of a product and it's it's going to jeopardize our CML, what's my priority, the CML or the fact that they can't hold the product, get the product? It's the CML, you know? So I will go and sort that out for them, you know? And they know that they can come to me, I will sort that out. And don't get me wrong, there's times where, where subcontractors aren't very good at scheduling, but in the background, I'm giving the manufacturer visibility and pipeline of our work, make sure that they've got stock available, make sure that they can service our contracts so that we potentially can mitigate the risk around poor subcontract management. I mean, you're making it abundantly clear the importance of the procurement and supply chain uh, leadership alongside the commercial department. It, It makes absolute, complete and utter sense. Just turning to the point of pipeline for subcontractors, is your process for explaining pipeline your future pipeline to subcontractors in any way different to how you do it with suppliers it is but purely going back to my point about you know regionalization you know if you're if you're lucky enough to work for a, a contractor a house builder that very has a very small or core patch you know say west midlands yeah then yeah absolutely you can talk to your supply chain your subcontract supply chain around visibility pipeline because you know that 90 percent of that supply chain could operate in that patch so you can pre-negotiate you can leverage commercial opportunity you can talk about projects that are coming down the pipeline if you're working for a business that has a wider geographical patch or is a regionalized business then you almost have many supply chains so therefore you have less pipeline or less visibility or less ability to leverage that commercial opportunity purely just because you haven't got that to offer the difference there with obviously material and supply is that I will have probably the same supplier of doors, for instance, across all my sites, no matter where the site is. But I will probably have four, five, six different carpenters, you know, and that's the difference ultimately. So your large volume house builders will have a regional office. That regional office will have a core supply chain and they will talk to that supply chain about pipeline visibility because they know in that region they only operate within say 50 mile radius of that office whereas your large large contractors or small sme developers you know we're an sme house builder or developer we don't classify ourselves as regional we but we operate probably across the entire middle england you know so we have mini supply chains and within those mini supply chains, we have conversations around, you know, projects and pipeline, but it's nowhere near probably to the extent that a large houseboat or a large contractor that is geographically focused in one region will have. Yeah, but still the critical point being that you're cultivating a, a relationship by explaining to whichever, if it's a mini region, if it's the full supply chain, you're cultivating that relationship by explaining the pipeline talking regularly and that's the critical thing right 
It is, and but it, but that comes at different stages of of where you are as a business. You know, in early conception, you'll probably go to your tried and tested until you can't use them anymore, or until you've overused them, or until they let you down, and then you start to explore, and then or you get another product that's out of patch, and you have to start a new relationship. But obviously, the more established you become, you know, repeat business is absolutely key. You know, collaboration is key, but you know, it's the journey of a growing business. You, you, you'll, you'll lose some, you gain some. But as long as along the way, as long as you have kind of a core supply chain that that knows you, supports you, you know them, they know what we expect, we know what we can expect from them. You know, you can you can operate efficiently. But collaboration, repeat work, pipeline, ultimately, that enables us to deliver better quality, deliver on time, maximize our profit. You know, uh, it's basics, but, you know, it's not always achievable. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. And there's so, I think we're very aligned in terms of mentality here, John. Um, the people, the guys listening will be for, for sure taking something from us and thinking about how to adapt. My final question for you is about, like I said, it's December 2023. What are your plans for, like, how are you planning, I guess, for 2024? I'm just playing. I'm just playing for a better 2024 than a bet than the 2023. I think <laughs> um, it's it's a tough one, isn't it? You know, the market is tough, um, especially in house building. You know, we we focused on driving efficiency um, without jeopardising quality. If I look at my team, you know, I'm looking at how I could develop my team. How can we do better? What can we do? How can we improve efficiency? Um, how can we support the business better? How can we support our site teams better? Can we explore new technology? Can we explore different ways of building um, modern methods of construction, for instance, or component construction? Can we be innovative in different ways? And also, you know, how can we navigate the challenges of building regulation changes? How can we become more sustainable in our procurement? In our, and how can our homes become more sustainable with also the customer in mind. There's a lot in play then. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's not always. It's, yeah, there is exactly. It's not a simple answer. Um, to be honest, if you ask me what I'm hoping for realistically for 24, I just want to make sure that we do the best that we can do, that we deliver. You know, we thrive eventually. You know, ultimately the market will pick up, and I want my team to be at the forefront of that, and that we I want them to be recognised in what they do and how they deliver, how they contribute to the business and. You know, when we sit here potentially at the end of 24 and, it, and business is booming, um, hopefully, then, you know, they should actually, you know, they should have that recognition. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and maybe you've just, you've just given us the excuse to uh, come back here and reflect in uh, December oh, yeah. 2024 when we, can, yeah. when we can look back, see what happens. But um, all jokes aside, John, it's, uh, it's been absolutely amazing uh, talking to you about this and it fits so well with almost like our core beliefs as a business at at Sealink, our beliefs in terms of what we've been talking about most uh, recently on this show last last week. And I think there's a huge amount to take away. So despite being an Aston Villa fan, I will extend my gratitude for you coming on the show, mate. And <laughs> I will be putting your details, Hayfield Homes details in the show notes. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the show, mate. No, thank you for having me. It's been good. Awesome. And guys, don't forget there's that ebook um, for you guys to download on QS KPIs, which, touching on John's point, I think is absolutely uh, relevant today. I will be back next week. Until then, have a good one. <laughs> <laughs>